Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Today's episode is a little different. It's a collection of segments from several archaeologists. Robin Lacey, who you'll remember from the episode about burials and blogging, and Daniel Kwan, who's a frequent guest on the show and host of the Curiosity and Focus podcast, answer a couple questions I put out on social media. Why did you get into archaeology? And what made you stay? I'm putting out an open invitation to send in your submissions to those questions uh, or to set up a time to record with me. I'd like to hear why you got into archaeology, why you stayed in it, or why you left. Uh, These answers tend to be widely different, and uh, the stories behind them are fascinating. So check out the companion blog post on godigahole.com for a Dropbox link to uh, upload directly, or reach out to me on social media at godigahole to get your word in. This was a fun episode to put together, so I hope you enjoy it. All right. The first question is, why did you get into archaeology? Oh, this is a good story. It's a really good story. So I've wanted to be an archaeologist since I was 11. Uh, I was at, and I always always rep this institution, but I was at the Royal Ontario Museum attending a summer camp. Um, I was 11 years old. I was with my kid brother. And we were at a summer camp learning how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And we were learning about history and art. And we went behind the scenes to the curatorial center at the ROM. And I met one of the technicians there. And his name is uh, Robert Mason. And he showed us all he, he showed us all of these weapons and armor. And he let us try on some replicas and hold swords. And he told us he was an archaeologist. Uh, he worked in Syria. And he's worked elsewhere in the world. And I thought he was like the coolest guy in the world. He had tattoos. He knew all about weapons. He had a dope mustache. uh, (laughs) And of course, he had a British accent. And I was like, okay, that's it. I want to be just like him. I want to be an archaeologist. That's what archaeologists do. Absolutely. And so I pursued archaeology because I like idolized this guy I met at a museum. And I just went for it ever since then. I was like, okay, I'll do this in school. I studied anthropology, became an archaeologist, got my master's. Now I'm getting my PhD. And the funny thing is, Robert Mason is like a really good friend of mine now. Uh, He still works at the ROM. And he actually trained me in the analytical technique that I specialize in. Um, I see him like all the time when I'm at the museum. I use this lab. uh, And I consider him like, a colleague and a friend now, which is really crazy yeah. considering the fact that I met him when I was younger and he remembers me from that moment. Wow. And he likes to, re- and he likes to remind everybody that we meet that he's known me since I was this high and he'll like point to the ground. <laughs> but yeah. like, yeah, shout, shout out to Rob Mason. That is cool. All right. Next question. What made you stay in archeology span or, and I think you're a unique case for this. Why have you left? Ah, uh, yeah. I saw you post about this on Facebook. Yeah. And I was like, Chris is going to ask me this. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh, I think, well, there are a couple of reasons why I've stayed in archaeology for this long. The, the first reason is that it's afforded me, you know, the lifestyle that I live. I'm financially independent, and I think I'm different from a lot of archaeology grad students in that I have zero debt. Um, I have zero debt, 
and I have a lot of investments. And I got a lot of that from archaeology. I've been really fortunate to receive a lot of uh, very prestigious grants that have kind of kept me going. Uh, being in grad school means that you have a lot of time to yourself. You get to make your own schedule. And by making your own schedule, you're afforded opportunities to uh, build a life outside of archaeology or build a life within it, but doing unique things like, you know, the Go Dig a Hole podcast or my show, Curiosity and Focus. Um, so I've stayed in archaeology, one, because it's afforded me a, the lifestyle that I live. It allows me to engage in other creative and professional endeavors. Um, but three, because, you know, it's also helped me really get in touch with my own roots. Yeah, I'm a Chinese Canadian kid. Uh, I grew up here in Toronto and I really don't speak Chinese. Uh, I live in, I grew up in, and I still live in a primarily, uh, Ukrainian neighborhood. Um, and I didn't grow up learning about my own culture. Like I knew that my, you know, my father came from China. He, he grew up in Southern China, went to Hong Kong and then came to Canada when he was 11. But my dad had like no like memories of China. He like he remembers his childhood, but you know I never learned about China. I never learned about you know the Cultural Revolution when I was younger. I never learned about you know the different cuisines in China. I never learned about you know Chinese history. Um, so archaeology has kind of given me a way to learn more about my own family, learn more about my own culture. You know I, I get to travel to China. I get to eat all the foods that I've never seen before. I get to learn about my family's history and, of course, the history of a nation, you know, the history of China as a republic, the history of China as a communist state, but also, you know, the ancient history of China. So I stayed in archaeology also because, you know, it's allowed me to learn more about myself, uh, you know, in a, in a very cult, broad cultural perspective. Um, so you, could, you can simplify that and say, yeah, I stayed in archaeology because of the money, the opportunity, and the the learning opportunity uh, nice. to learn more about myself and my culture. I, I, I feel like that sounds very sentimental, but it's true. Now, why did I leave archaeology? I think we should rephrase that to why am I leaving archaeology? <laughs> um, I'm leaving archaeology because uh, of the opportunities that I've cultivated while being an archaeologist. You know, archaeology and academia in general are really hard on your body, your mind, and your social life. Um, you know, working in academia is really, really interesting. Uh, it's really cool. You get to meet new people. You get to you get to literally create knowledge. And as an archaeologist, you get to tell stories. But the way the current university, and I say university as a whole, is being run is very much like that of a business. Yeah. Uh, in order to get the funding that you need, you need to be engaging in sexy research that gets funding. But sometimes what you're interested in might not be the most fundable research. So you constantly find yourself compromising what you want to study in order to keep your job, in order to keep the funding, in order to stay relevant. Um, academia also is a highly competitive environment and it's not the only competitive environment but it is a highly competitive one in a very specific way you know in graduate school you work with people who you consider your friends um, but you also realize are competing for the very limited number of jobs that are there for you yeah um, 
And that weighs heavily on you the entire time you're there. And it's something that I don't really enjoy. Uh, my passion is right now, you could say not in archaeology, but more in the dissemination of knowledge. My passion is in education. So the reason why I'm leaving archaeology is because I want to do things that aren't academic. I want to, you know, share knowledge with other people. If you work in a university and you don't, or you don't have like a dope podcast, like go dig a hole, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm constantly plugging you, man. You, uh, I love it. Thank you. Go dig a hole.com. Uh, you don't, uh, you're producing knowledge for like a very specific set of people. Uh, for instance, like I, I've published two papers this year, one in ethnoarchaeology and another in the journal journal of um, journal of archaeological sciences, journal of archaeological science. I published two papers this year in uh, very high ranking journals, and I think in my lifetime, maybe twenty people will read them, and even fewer if I didn't have a platform like my podcast or appearances on yours or my social media. Yeah, you know, and I work very hard for those publications. You know, my dissertation will pop will probably be read by maybe 10 maybe 20 people and the impact it will have on the world is is not as high as you know one would like now that's not to say that it's not worth it you know not acquiring knowledge for the sake of that is important and telling stories for people who you know haven't been able to tell stories like people in you know ancient and in the ancient past and antiquity is a very important job and that's never to downplay. My, my job is never to downplay the, the role of archaeology or the social sciences or storytelling in general. But I think there are better ways to do it for me. So I wouldn't necessarily be leaving archaeology. I think it's more of me leaving academia. Yeah. Yeah. It's the uh, expansion deck, if you will. Yeah, it, it's, it's the expansion deck. It's the, the expansion pack to the game of life that is me. Uh, you know, I have a budding career in, you know, in the gaming industry. I have a strong and growing career in education, which I've been in longer than I've been in academia. And, you know, I have a great platform with my own podcast. I have, you know, over 2000 subscribers and I, I get to share stories and talk to people like you do all the time. The knowledge that I obtain through that podcast reaches more brains than the knowledge that I obtain through my own academic research, uh, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I published a uh, paper on, uh, it had nothing to do with archaeology. It was um, urban community gardening at, mm. from a sustainability approach. Um, and so I, I looked at kind of the, the demographics and like the, the health and the crime and the you know, the impact it has on like uh, rainwater runoff and stuff like that, the, all the various factors. Um, and oddly enough, like that thing's on academia.edu. Oddly enough, that thing gets more play than anything I've ever written for archaeology. Yeah. The, I, I wrote a, I wrote a, uh, a blog post for my website, danielhquan.com. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a blog post. Um, and within 12 hours, it had reached almost 3,000 people. Nice. So uh, that's like, you know, that's a very interesting thing to experience while actively working in academia. Yeah. I feel like the, the university, and not all, 
but I feel like universities aren't quite caught up to the speed in which information reaches people. Oh, totally. And I think the traditional dissertation is uh, a very slow and ineffective way of disseminating information. Yeah. And I honestly think that I'm not the kind of person who should be in academia. Um, I have uh, a friend of mine who's been on my show, uh, Steve Dorland. He's an archaeologist. He works in southern Ontario. And he has the most incredible work ethic of any academic, any grad student I've ever met. He's always working on a new paper, always, always grinding away at the grant applications. Sometimes he gets them, sometimes he doesn't, but he always keeps working. And I see that, and I think that's the guy who deserves that tenure-track position. That's the guy who's passionate about being an academic, who's passionate about, you know, being an archaeologist. Now, he isn't into social media like I am. He isn't into producing a podcast or or writing uh, for the public. He's really interested in being an academic. Yeah, it's a a totally different mode of performance, too. Exactly. And somebody like him, I think, is way better suited to that. Yeah. And so I see people like that, and I think, yeah, that's for them, but it's definitely not for me. Yeah. So the reason why I'm leaving archaeology, or the reason why I'm leaving academic archaeology, is because I'd like to pursue other things, and I'd like my voice to be heard on a platform that I've sort of cultivated on my own. And that platform is not academic. I'm Robin Lacey. I got into archaeology when I was little through visiting historic places and museums with my family. I found learning about the past completely fascinating and was ecstatic when I found out as a kid that an archaeologist was a real job. I became determined to spend as much of my life as possible learning about the past so that other people in the future could learn about it too. So I've been on the road for the past week for work in California, and I got to visit Dr. Bill White at UC Berkeley and sit in on his course on ancient African civilizations. While I was there, I met his incredibly bright students and got a chance to meet a few of them. It was awesome, and I really hope to do more visits like that in the future. Uh, We sat down to talk about why he got into archaeology and to take a deep dive into the challenges that early career archaeologists face in making it work for them. So why'd you get into archaeology? Why did I get into archaeology? Yeah. Uh, I always wanted to do archaeology. Well, I take that back. I wanted to be either an astronaut or an archaeologist, but by the time I was in high school, I was too tall to be an astronaut, (laughs) so I just became an archaeologist (laughs) instead. Uh, I keep hoping, especially with house prices here in the Bay Area, I'll be able to sell my house and then go to Virgin Galactic, and then I'll be an astronaut and an archaeologist in one lifetime. Perhaps even a space archaeologist. Well, we'll see. I don't know. That would be cool. So, uh, when did you get into archaeology? Um, uh, like, what point in life were you in? Yeah, you know, this is really interesting question. Once I did a, um, a workshop with Carol Ellick and Joe Watkins... And they had everybody put on a on a card um, when they decided that they wanted to become an archaeologist. And then they went around the room and asked everyone when they actually became an archaeologist. So when I was, you know, five or six years old, I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist. But I didn't actually get to do any formal excavation until I think 2000 when I did field school as an undergrad. So... I don't even know. I turned 21 in the field. So 15 years I wanted to do archaeology before I actually got a chance to do any archaeology. 
Wow. Yeah. That's... And that wasn't, it, it seems like it's a long time, but that was kind of the common thing in that whole room. Yeah. Everybody waited more than a decade before they actually did it. And there were a few people who actually in their high school had a, a volunteer opportunity or um, maybe a, a, a high school or middle school teacher who talked about archaeology and took students to sites and they got a taste of it. But easily 80% of us waited more than a decade. There was almost no one who just decided when they were 19 to change majors. Everybody just wanted to do it from the beginning. That's really interesting. There's a lot to talk about just in that that answer right there. Yeah. So what made you stay? Like, it took you so long. Why, why didn't you do anything else? Like, or did you? It, yeah, no, I mean, I did. And, and my career didn't end up where it's at overnight. Um, I started, like most other people, just doing uh, field school as an undergraduate. And then um, I went to Boise State, and I had to work my way through college. So uh, as I moved out and was on my own, I had to work more and more hours, and I didn't have as much time to volunteer. And I definitely had you know, almost no opportunity to go do free archaeology like field schools or internships. So um, all throughout my undergrad, I had to work, and I didn't volunteer anywhere. Well... In the end, I ended up finishing school with only a field school, and that's, you know, okay, but as I've written on my blog many times, um, that's not enough to get a job most of the time, just a field school. You're going to have to either talk your way in, or you're going to have to have some kind of other project experience. So I graduated, and I was working at Costco and pushing carts and, and doing that whole thing and being a cashier, and then one day, one of my advisors came through the line and and he, I remember it so clearly. He was saying, well, what are you doing here? And I was like, you know, working. And he goes, well, I thought you wanted to do archaeology. Well, I don't know how to find a job. And then he said, well, did you try in CRM? And I was like, what is CRM? I never even heard of it before. So <laughs> Customer I, relations management. <laughs> well, they didn't even actually have that. Yeah. I don't even know if it was called that back then. Uh, yeah, no. In, in, in 2001, I had no idea what CRM was. No one had ever talked about contract archaeology. I had. Ne I thought it was just professors that did archaeology. I thought that was the only job you could get. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I. he told me probably the best advice I ever got. You're going to have to quit this job because when you're desperate, you're going to have to find some kind of way to make it work. And you're never going to try if you are always getting paid. If you fed and you have shelter, you're never going to try. And then he said, now you need to start applying to CRM jobs. And so I started doing that, but I didn't know what I was doing. And then he said, and also apply to graduate school because you're probably going to need a master's. And they have a master's at Idaho. So kind of around the same time. Before that, I had been putting together resumes that have my pizza making jobs and all kinds of stuff on there. And, you know, <laughs> not really highlighting any kind of archaeology. Yeah. And then sending them to get a, a postdoc or you know, a professor position. It was, it was unreal. I, did, I had no idea whatsoever how to find a job. And so I was just embarrassing myself by putting, you know, garbage resumes out there and getting no response. Um, so, you know, he really helped me target it and I started putting more heart into it and um, doing more uh, calling around. And I actually started using the internet for the first time instead of just looking at the yellow pages to find a job. And uh, I also put in a, a, 
I applied to graduate school too because you know if you can't find a job what else are you going to do go to graduate school (laughs) (laughs) so I was one of those guys totally so I applied to three different schools I think and got turned down and accepted at Idaho and I got accepted at Idaho around the same time I got my first offer to do an archaeology project for a CRM company in California and I had to say no it's going to go into school I have to have to go to school so it took months and months I mean I think you know, he came through my line around Christmas and I spent all that time applying to everything. And by, I think, June, I got my first real bite at a job that wasn't going to be more than a day. It is so tough to come out as a, f- a fresh college graduate with a bachelor's degree in archaeology. And like you had said, like, how do you even build a resume that's competitive if the only employment you have straight out of college is you know, service industry or retail or whatever, mm. you know, a- any normal person does going through because there's kind of like, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like there's, there's so much against you as, as an archaeologist to just starting off. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, you know, that's why if I had it to do over again, I would have maybe taken, used my vacation time at my jobs or taken leave of absences to volunteer on you know, there were surveys and projects that were going on in the area that needed crew. Uh, it wasn't super steady, but I could have probably done a week here and a week there. And across, you know, four years of undergrad, then you have three or four projects and you meet bosses and you've worked for a couple different companies. So that when you finish, you have your, you have your um, field school and then you have a little bit of experience. Yeah, I really wish that I had made that sacrifice instead of just saying, well, I need the overtime because it'd be nice to have an extra money. Well, if I had just, you know, taken the weekend or my weekend off and worked two days for a company, that could have been worth more than the money I made working four extra hours for overtime. Yeah, and probably even changed your prospects for grad school as well. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, not just getting a job in CRM. Like, I have these students in Belize uh, through the AFAR program, and they're high school students, but... You know, some of them come into the Belize program as a a freshman in high school, and by the time they're graduating and applying to colleges, they have more field experience than most, you know, early career archaeologists. Yeah, or maybe even some of their professors. Yeah, and they even go to, uh, you know, international conferences and present their research. And so to have, like, academic conference presentation on their CV applying to college just to get in like, yeah the they have their pick of whatever college they want to get mm-hmm. into and it's just been amazing to see what what they do after the program many of them don't go on to be ar- archaeologists uh, but you know they they carry on an appreciation of archaeology mm-hmm. um, yeah I think that it's it's great that you said that because I do feel like that might be the strength of um, public archaeology or community-based archaeology because if you can get a student so two things if you can get a student who's an undergrad and have them do several different archaeology projects, even if they're volunteering, that builds experience, right? Yeah. But if you can do that when you're a high school student, that's you know head and shoulders above other people because you'll have three or four different you know experiences working on a volunteer project. Then you'll have your field school, and if you also you know work for companies, then you'll have three or four different companies. It'll be you know, you'll be a 21 year old with basically a month or four months of experience. Yeah. 
than no one else. All your other competition for a field tech job is going to have one field school. It's four weeks or six weeks. Yeah. And then when you're graduating, uh, you know, after your bachelor's degree, with a situation like that, if you have so much experience through high school and probably if you continue it through undergrad, you don't even have to list what you've been doing for employment because then you get to say, you know, what you've been doing for research, which is yeah. leaps and bounds more valuable when you're looking at a uh, master's degree. Yeah, so that PhD. I'm glad you brought that up because um, we're moving into a world where basically you need to show what you can do. Yeah. And with the internet, it makes it super easy to show what you can do. Yeah. Uh, depending on what your, you know, restraints for the project are, you could make videos of yourself. You can give you know conference presentations and have white papers. You can have all this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, and it's all hosted on LinkedIn or something like that, or Academia yeah. Edu. I yeah. don't know if you can actually host videos, but I know that LinkedIn will let you hook up uh, videos and, and other things. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's really. I mean, it's kind of unethical to spend so much time surfing the net for uh, new hires because if you if you use the internet, you're kind of you're kind of seeing what their online persona is. And if you, it, it's as if you were driving down the street and you saw a pro-life bumper sticker on someone's car in front of their house and they were applying for a job at a place that's you know, pro-choice, an organization that doesn't believe in that. And then you profile that individual, even if you don't know if it's their car, you don't know. I mean, it's the same thing with social media. Some crazy relative is posting ridiculous rants on your Facebook and then you go and look that person up and then you see all this you know, political or anti, you know, establishment stuff, you're, yeah. it, it, it flavors them wrong. So there's, there's a kind of ethical dilemma there. I mean, you're going to do it. You're going to Google someone, but really should you be judging them based on that? However, if you know that people are going to do that, it's really easy to set the whole thing up so that they only see. Yeah. You can easily set up your account so that they see who you are. I mean, yeah, lock it down, hide. filter privacy, and then whenever you have something that you want to share as a professional, make it public. Or, you know, seed your LinkedIn. Like yeah. Because LinkedIn is becoming way more popular than it used to be. Uh -huh. And I, I think, like, I don't, I don't know if it was, like, almost dead for a while, but it had become quite unpopular for a while. And then, you know, now it's seeing this resurgence uh -huh. as, you know, just a, a normal part of the the work environment mm -hmm. uh, or the job market rather you know people are asking are you on linkedin can we do it on linkedin and you know i'll have like a client or something we'll trade just a couple emails and then i'll see like hours later they're poking around on my linkedin yeah and i'm like i see you i see you yeah so everybody sees everything it's uh -huh. kind of like the panopticon or whatever like you got to make sure that uh you know you're doing the best thing <laughs> at least for what they can see <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's also like when you're a teenager though and you're, you want to do some dirt, but you don't want your parents to find out. Well, you, what, <laughs> clean your room, you get get those grades up, you maybe fill the gas tank in the car, and then they're just like, man, I really love my son. And then you go and sneak out and go and hang out or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. So on the internet, you make this whole persona, and it's all this stuff that you want them to see, but then you do whatever you feel like, you know, in the privacy of your own uh, social space. Well, I mean, that's the best thing about LinkedIn, that you can... I mean, it's not really gaming it. If you know how to use it, you can optimize it so yeah. that you look way better than others. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I'm not sure if it's ethical for us to use the internet. However, it's almost second nature. 
to type someone's name in and put Facebook, or if you're going for a job, type their name in and put uh, um, LinkedIn or, or yeah. something like that, right? Just assume everyone's scoping you out. And I know a couple of people uh, who are you know, our age that have just basically decided they don't really care. They only want the resume to fulfill HR mm-hmm. because they're just going to go through LinkedIn and find the people that they want and ask them to get hired. Or yeah. they know an individual, they heard of them, they type their Facebook in and see good stuff, and then they just you know message them or call them and say, hey, man, there's a job. Yeah. So that was the, that's the thing about breaking into archaeology. Um, working in Arizona taught me this. There's almost never job postings on archaeology field work for the state of Arizona. And if you see it, it's almost always, this corporation is a multinational you know, environmental solutions corporation from our headquarters in Milwaukee, and we have an opening in Phoenix. Yeah, that company's not actually from Arizona. They're just trying to get work in Arizona. Or they got a contract there, and now they're trying to fill it, right? It's just being posted because the Department of Labor requires them to, but it's probably already filled. Yeah, because in Arizona... The companies that are actually from there, it's so difficult. There's so many archaeologists and it's so difficult to survive. They just say, hey, we need five people for the next project, you know, in a month. Mm-hmm. You guys know anyone? And you literally just text right then and there. When does your project end? Do you want to work for my company, right? Yeah. So once you once you get on that project or you meet those people and you start hanging out and they know who you are, especially if you set up your online stuff, yeah, it's just going to say, hey, we need five people next week. Can we get some people? And all the folks there just text the three or four folks they actually know. Yeah. And if you know them, they're just going to text you and say, hey, you want to work for a month? Come on down. Yeah. So there's not really, I mean, you, you use your resume to prove what they already actually, in fact, know about you so that the company is okay with HR. Right. Yeah. And more often than not, I feel like um, if you're a decent human being and you know you're good at what you do, you'll end up getting recruited to your next project while you're on a project Mm -hmm. that I see that happen all the time where, where, you know, you can be on a, either a long or even just a 10 day project and people start asking, Hey, uh, what are you doing after this? Yeah. Or, you know, maybe they're looking for work themselves and they want to come along with you. And, you know, that's just how the networks go. You can just kind of like bring along your, your crew of people that you've met and you work well with. Yeah, that the the networking and having a crew and stuff, there is also an element. Of, I mean, I've seen it before where people don't want to tell others about job opportunities because they're afraid that this person is going to get it. But the re, kind of the reality is, um, if you pay it forward and you help someone else out, you've just created a friend, and then you also created a friend through everyone they know, right? Right. Yeah. So if they're another tech. And you like them well enough to work with them again, and you guys both end up on the same project. You just expanded your network much larger than you ever could alone. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, that kind of goes back to something you had said about social media is, you know, everybody sees everything. But Uh it happens also with the the in-person networks, too. Oh, yeah. The stories of, you know, if, if you mess up, if you get like way too drunk one night or if you say something <laughs> super inappropriate or if you're a scumbag, like everybody knows and that whole network, like you uh, said, their whole network knows. And then, you know, it filters on, filters on. I was working on a project in Arkansas and I heard dirt like with a crew that I had never worked with before, but they knew people who I knew of. 
And so it's like there's the whole three degrees of separation thing. Uh-huh. And I, I was hearing like all sorts of dirt on people that, you know, like I had heard dirt on from other parts of the country. And I was like, dang, they yeah. cannot escape. No, I know. Yeah, the rumor mill, I, I saw a talk by, um, um, gosh, Chris Dore and, oh man, I'm trying to think of who the other person was, but they were talking about how many archaeologists there are, and they estimated there's about 10,000 archaeologists in the United States. That's, you know, less than a 10,000th of Americans are archaeologists. There is an extremely high chance someone knows you. Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine living in a town of 10,000? I mean, (laughs) if you're living in a town of 10,000, everybody knows your business. Yeah. Some of the people listening to this are like, yeah, I know exactly what they're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. So that puts it into perspective. Uh, Yeah. No joke. You live in a town of 10,000 that has like one high school. You know, every student in your grade and half the people in the grades below and above, you know, know all these kids. Yeah. And you know that it's, it's sometimes it's, um, it actually works the other way too, though, where some people's career can be shielded because they have this reputation of a good guy and then they do something unethical and then no one will believe it. Yeah. No, she's so amazing though. It doesn't really sound like her. Well, you'll get a second chance, but you still did something and get swept under the rug, right? Yeah. There's a lot of that that has to be navigated and like, I feel like there are so many positive examples, but people do have to be careful, especially starting out of traps like that. And, uh, you know, like if you fall into a trap like that, there's, there's like power dynamics. Yeah. too. So it's like, if you have someone, like you said, who has a shield, generally that shield is propped up by a power dynamic and you know, they can punch down with no ramifications Yeah. and they're just going to stay in their position. Yeah, that's the that's the thing that I kind of don't like. Um, so yeah, starting out, you always end up working with these people who have more experience. You know, whether that was actually good experience, there's no way to measure that. So you get on this crew with these other people. They all have these differing levels of experience. Some people, as you were saying, take that power trip to a whole new level of kind of just treating the new hires like junk and you know denigrating them and. I mean, I've heard people in charge say that, you know, the the uh, the techs are just like a shovel. If they break, I just get another one, right? Yeah. Or you're just the tool I use to dig mm-hmm. my site. That kind of stuff, you know, happens more often than I can think. And I don't know. These guys, are the, the folks that have said that, they're still doing archaeology. They're yeah. still working with new hires. So I don't know what you do if you're a new... I mean, obviously, if it's unethical or illegal or something like that, you, it's up to you. However, you are at an extreme disadvantage if you're first starting out and something unethical happens to you. I mean, it, it just really reminds me of the Me Too thing, right? Right. Yeah. It's going all exactly over Facebook and social media, Me Too. So incredibly sleazy things are happening. And I had no idea the prevalence that this kind of stuff was happening. And I kind of talked to some people online and I was saying, well, I've got a daughter. How can I protect her from this? And they were saying, there is no way to protect a woman from this. You just have to change the men's culture that that's not acceptable. Uh, So if you're at a place where there's individuals who think you're the same level as a shovel and that you can be treated and discarded, I mean, that's the kind of 
you know, dynamics that have to change in order right. for anything to change. Yeah, there's some organizing to do. Yeah. You know, to join with the people who know better and will do better and, you know, work around that. And, I, you know, that's, um, you know, I, I don't know if you're at liberty to share any of your political opinions, but I'm a filming at the mouth socialist. And, <laughs> and that's the kind well, of you thing. do live in Portland. I, I, <laughs> I think that there's a like a wall on the bridge. If you try to cross into downtown Portland, they're like scanning your car. <laughs> All right, well, that guy seems like he's a socialist. Let him in. Right. He shall pass, you know. Then <laughs> Gandalf comes down like, no, you shall not pass. Like, Until you've read the Communist Manifesto <laughs> and you are ready. Yeah. I see that NRI sticker, you shall not pass. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, as far as politics, I try to stay away. I, it's just, it's killing me these days. It's killing me. The, the politics is just bad. Yeah. Being a decent human being is what I believe in. Yeah. So the candidate that is most decent as a human being that wants to help other human beings is the one who I would, you know, I jive with. And yeah. In, on the spectrum of politics, you know, I, I'm from Idaho, so you have to view these things individually, right? And there are just straight up. <laughs> you know, I think they're insane uh, conservatives that come out of the state of Idaho that are just like, I don't know if you were, you know, created out of clay or something like that, or if you're an actual human, because I really don't understand what you're, what perspective you're coming from. But there's also, because it is the state of Idaho, the only way that you can get elected is to be a Republican. People that you would call a Democrat that are Republican right. because they would never get elected in their district if they weren't Republican. Yeah. So you ask them about all the stuff and they start talking about helping people and doing all this other, you know, wait a minute, that sounds like Democratic stuff. Well, yeah, but it's Idaho. So if I said Democrat, no one would ever vote for me. Right. Yeah. So the putting the label on the people that doesn't, I don't know. In the workplace, though, the thing that I found that I've had the biggest problem with is if if you do work under a, you know, a person who is unethical and they've been there for a long time there's almost no mechanism yeah to get rid of them there's almost no way for you to get away from that person especially if it's one of the pis i mean i've heard some pretty corrupt things happening and the thing too is the way hr works and this isn't a slam against hr it's you know it's but it's it's so slow acting and they require it places the burden of proof on the person making the complaints and so when it comes to the the whole like who said what Mm -hmm. kind of thing and there's no evidence for it it's like how do you prove this person is a soul-sucking scumbag that makes your job miserable uh you really can't so i don't know what do you think i I say just leave well, yeah, but you can only do that so many times, right? Because right. there's only so many companies in a given area. That's true. And especially if you're starting off, sometimes you actually can't just leave because this is like, if you don't get this experience and you don't follow this to fruition, I mean, that's how you end up on horror jobs where you're not getting paid overtime. They don't want to give you the per diem, all these horrible things. And they're forcing the crew to work under, you know, bad conditions because they know they're desperate and cannot leave, right? Yeah. So... I I mean I've worked with principal investigators that are excellent humans that you know they were invited to my wedding that I'm still friends with years after having worked for them there's other people that I wouldn't cross the street for that I worked for for years that were horrible supervisors that I don't have any contact with right yeah so uh, I mean 
if it was super unethical, that's really up to you. If it's basically against the law, so you then, should always come down on the side of the law because right. If especially if you don't have the power and you do something illegal, they just hang it around your neck and then you get sent out adrift. Yeah, and they still keep doing their thing. You have to take a stand when it's illegal, but just them being jerks or you know not very nice people to work with, you just have to suck that up. Yeah, that's with every job, I think. Yeah. So then I, I, I agree with you then that, you know, most times it's probably not feasible to leave. Like a lot of people don't have the luxury of mobility. Um, but, you know, to go back to the idea, just the concept of organizing, it doesn't have to be like, I'm going to form a union yeah. and I'm going to take this person down. It can just be finding an ally in yeah. your company, finding an ally in your project. And just kind of being like, okay, I'm just going to weather this storm together and, you know, come what may, like you said, suck it up. Yeah. But then once That's you, horrible once you advice get for someone to, who's in a bad... Yeah. So, like, the one I would... The one caveat, bringing it back to the Me Too, if that kind of harassment is happening, I do not think you should suck it up. Oh, absolutely. Um, whether well, it, whether it's the against the law or whether side. it's... Well, uh, I mean, if it's not against the law, right? Right. So if it's just guys doing disgusting things constantly all the time, and you're a woman and you're always around it, or if someone's always saying borderline, um, uh, uh, like, uh, homophobic stuff that's not technically illegal, but they're just constantly riffing on it and joking about it and laughing about things. So they're not actually, in fact, breaking the law. They probably actually know of the HR laws and they're not going the full distance, right? Yeah. But if you're in a horrible situation that's uncomfortable like that, yeah, you got it. You must leave. Could be To stay there is, you know, mentally and emotionally destructive. But if you're just working with someone who's a total jerk and a bean counter and is, like, rude or whatever, I mean, that's not really... you. Go ahead. You can survive that. I mean, it's not illegal and it's not, you know extremely bad your feelings are just being hurt well that's just how that person is well said yeah 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 i mean the i i do agree in joining together and i do agree with uh unionization and i do think that it's been too long in almost every industry for most workers to not be part of a union right yeah I'm not saying that the union is actually going to help you that much more. And I'm not saying that they're not bad. There's obviously stuff going on with the unions that are not okay, right? Right. However, as an individual in a right-to-work world, I don't care if you live in New York or California. You still basically live in a right-to-work state. It may take them longer to get rid of you, but you're going to get rid of if they feel like getting rid of you. They'll find a way to lay you off. Yeah. If you don't have any kind of union protection... The union does not actually protect the individuals who are new to the whole game because they don't have seniority. It's seniority-based. Vice versa. People who are horror stories that have been there for a long time will be protected by the union. So right. you're not going to... If they're total scumbags, it'll be even more difficult to get rid of them with the union. Yeah. However, the way things are going, field techs don't have anything. There's no one there to help them at all. And there's such a small group of employees that it's not... They don't have the mass to really do anything. And with the constant generation of more and more people to do the tech, and because it's not an actual professionalized job to be a field tech, um, you don't have any recourse but to join a union. That's like your only hope, right? Yeah. You can join forces with other individuals who uh, work with you, but 
if the company goes down or they're suffering because they've decided not to pay livable wages for so long that they cannot keep people alive at their wages. Yeah. You have you have nothing, right? There's not no obligation for your employer to keep you for 90 days till you find a new job, right? You're just done that day. Yeah. So these are the things like this came about. I had been I had been posting online asking people to add like answer the question, why'd you get into archaeology? Uh-huh. What made you stay? Because I knew that there would be a wide, wide range mm-hmm. of answers. And I feel like that's a question that I'm just going to leave on the table that anybody who wants to answer it at any time can yeah. answer it. But um, what I what I personally was getting at is exactly where you're coming from because I have seen I've seen a lot of my my colleagues in in CRM and even in academic archaeology burn out and leave. Oh yeah. And I've also seen the ones who stayed. You know, like I've I've seen some stay with some regrets, and because it does entail a lot of sacrifices. And yeah. So one of the things that I do try to hammer on with the go dig a hole podcast is just building realistic expectations mm-hmm. for careers in archaeology and um, i feel like you do a tremendous job with that with with you know your voice on the crm archaeology mm-hmm. podcast and also with your blog succinct research um you know and you also have just a wealth of personal experience mm-hmm. in these things because you you've lived with a foot in both worlds CRM archaeology and academic yeah. archaeology, and you've got you've got so many projects going on, but you find ways to sustain it. Yeah, I mean, I do have a lot of projects going on. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm new to academia. I mean, I did my PhD stuff, but what I'm doing right now is not necessarily the same thing. I would like to turn what I'm doing now into what I did for my PhD. Um, but you know, I so uh, why did I stay? I mean, there was definitely a point in time when I you know, I had a family and a mortgage and all this stuff. And I got laid off yet again with no real recourse to finding anything. And I ended up having to scramble, scramble to be a field tech again. And there was definitely a time when it was like, you're, I was working at a rad site that was just, you know, Hey, go ahead and dig that pit house now. Like, sweet. Are you kidding me? I think I found, um, 15 projectile points in one week five days of one half of a pit house that i dug my half of it right so it was all kinds of awesome hohocom stuff and i was seeing stuff that i'd never seen before just with the understanding that yeah when this six weeks is over i'm unemployed again yeah and uh my, my kid is burning through diapers and food and you know my wife is the one who has to work overtime to support us if, if she can get it yeah so uh yeah, there was definitely a kind of, is this really worth it? If you're finding this stuff, is this really worth it? Uh, and I think that's when I, I started blogging around that time because uh, I ended up figuring out the how to get hired and networking, and I luckily hadn't burned all my bridges and stuff, and so I was able to find a job during the recession. And then I was able to help several other people find jobs, and then I was going to start writing resumes, but no, everybody was unemployed, so they had no money. Yeah. So I just started to write blogs on how stuff that I was doing and, and how you could even survive, right? And I think that was about six years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's definitely a question of why do I do it. Now I have a different goal now that I work for a university. My goal is for people who graduate from uh, this university to get jobs in archaeology if they want them and to help them have the skills to get the jobs that they need. And 
and to get beyond the whole like academic CRM division because a scholar that makes it at the highest level at a place like Berkeley would be an amazing asset at a CRM company if they actually knew how to do CRM, right? Oh, I totally agree. Because someone who is able to perform at that intellectual level but also knows all the CRM is the kind of person that by the time they get to be a principal investigator could turn around like the whole way that you know an entire region thinks about archaeology. Yeah. And vice versa, you've got yeah. um, you know, a particularly gifted project manager or PI in CRM who's really, really good at time management, organization, personnel management, and like crafting a budget, staying on it, and really, really getting through to see results. If you apply that in the academic world to grants, oh, yeah. you can really spread your grants very far and maximize what you're able to do with your grants. <laughs> yeah, and that person's going to end up killing it because they'll be able to get grants since they already know the whole proposal process and they know about um, you know, the back end of marketing and CRM. Right. They don't have to necessarily only rely on a half million dollar NSF because they can just talk to companies and city governments to get smaller grants and talk their way into projects. Yeah. And then they know how to manage employees. They could actually end up employing folks. Yeah, my advisor at Arizona was just amazing at all of that stuff, finding ways to get money and supporting us through the whole situation. And, uh, you know, so I, I graduated this year. And I think last fall, my other office mate graduated. Well, I think three or four people graduated uh, last spring. One of them is a tenure track professor at... Oklahoma. I don't think she was his advisor, but I think she was. They we worked together. The other one is the lab director of the Oklahoma Archaeology Survey. Another guy is a tribal uh, anthropologist for the Nez Perce. Another lady works for a CRM company and uh, as a crew chief, moving into principal investigator in Tucson. Then I got this job. And, and it's I was part of a lineage of just people who are getting cranked out of Vara yeah. because of the work they do. They end up landing jobs. And so that's the kind of thing, like, I don't want anyone here to have to starve or, you know, go to pushing carts like I was. Yeah. Yeah, Sam. It was, uh, I had a pretty rocky start getting into archaeology. <laughs> and I feel like it wasn't just the start that was rocky. It was... Like years and years and years of, you know, feast or famine. And, you know, like I was very lucky in that I had, I had the pleasure of working with so many great people who were not just, you know, like fellow, uh, you know, techs, but also like crew chiefs, my supervisors and stuff. And I, I had a lot of great mentors coming out of that. But sometimes the projects sucked. Yeah. And so it's like, <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you love working with someone if you're just like dead, tired, <laughs> eaten up by bugs, yeah. you know, have snakes jumping at you, like oh, covered in God. briars and rashes. There's only so much of that you can put up with. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. And there were times also when I feel like I left it's hard so we'll come around we'll come around to another question after this but i feel like i left archaeology i feel yeah. like i've left archaeology many times and when i would leave archaeology it was for a variety of reasons and the reasons were were usually financial yeah and 
what I often had going on though is I always had a side hustle, and this is something that you and I have talked oh, about. Oh yeah. And there were times when when you know a side hustle or even just a side job, like there were times yeah. when I would be working nights at a bar in daytime uh. doing CRM gigs. And I, you know, come home from the field, frantically wash off, and then go to the bar yeah. and, and bartend all night, and you know, then just start it all over. And it's draining. But there were times when, like, that bar job held me through the famines in CRM. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, for sometimes the famines were greater than the feasts. And there were also sometimes when <laughs> I would just say no. I, yeah. I'm not going to do CRM for a while because I need to have a better paying job. Yeah. One with stability that I can, you know, count on being home, you know, like, you know, I've got like a sick cat or whatever. And like, if I had kids, mm-hmm. that would, that would be a, a big factor too. Yeah. But, um, you know, those are just things to weigh out. And I, I feel like, um, you really have to decide what works for you financially. Mm-hmm. And there's ways to set that up. Yeah. But, um, what 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 all that made me think of is you have a blog post on succinct research yeah pretty recently about what makes someone an archaeologist when do you get to call yourself oh, an archaeologist yeah. and so the idea of leaving archaeology many many times you know in many ways i did leave it but it's like i and in every other way, I never left uh-huh. it because I've always been rolling some kind of ball along with some kind of archaeological project ever since I started. Uh-huh. Uh, so, let, I guess let's chat a little bit yeah. about the blog. Yeah, no, the blog post, uh, let me look at the title here, actually I have it out. Can you ever get out of cultural resource management archaeology? And I haven't actually looked to see how many people have read this, but I it all came about someone posed a question about, um, you know, why did you get out of CRM? And everybody said the pay was horrible or there was no benefits or there was unethical stuff happening in the field or I was wanted to be a parent and it just wasn't conducive to that. So there was always these common themes. But every now and then, every now and then one person would say, man, I'm so happy I got out of that, right? But every single other person is like, yeah, if only I had gotten paid better or only if I could have survived, right. I would have I would have stayed in. Yeah. So I, just like you, I don't think that an archaeologist, you can ever, I don't think you can ever get out. Anyone who wanted to be an archaeologist has wanted to for years and years before they actually became an archaeologist. And the, you know, becoming a CRMer has actually been the realization of a dream. The problem is dreams don't always end up turning a dream into reality is not <laughs> always the same as having the dreams. So right. then you end up in the situation where your dream became real. And then where do you go from there? Right. And also the reality of it wasn't any way, the way that it seemed in the dream. So Now you're stuck in this place where your dream didn't pan out. Right. So that's basically what you hear with people who have gotten out of CRM. The dream didn't pan out, but boy, I still have the dream. So I don't think that you can get, you know, if you're an archaeologist and you wanted to see, do CRM, you can get out of CRM, but you cannot stop being an archaeologist because you always wanted to do it. Uh, conversely, I just realized that there is a huge pool of untapped um, uh, volunteer archaeologists. Oh, yeah. All these thousands of individuals who did CRM for four or five years, but then decided that they wanted to have a stability in life and you know they weren't becoming a PI... They didn't want to go back for a master's in anthropology knowing what the path. So they decided that they'd get out, but they just love it still. Yeah. 
if, if there was a way to organize those individuals, either through a Facebook group or something like that, those are your people who will help you with historic preservation. Yes. They're the ones who bring the kids on the weekend, will help you do the salvage dig. Right. Yeah, they, they, and they know what they're doing, too. Yeah, so. and I think that that brings up a great point about public archaeology and its mm -hmm. value in that it doesn't, like, that's the beauty of public archaeology is it's not a business model. Yeah. It's, it's just like, we got to get this done. We've got to preserve cultural heritage, uh, but we also need to make it family-friendly or make it work for people who work all week and might have a weekend off, uh -huh. stuff like that. Uh, you know, and it's got to be very public facing. Uh -huh. uh, so, I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. And one aspect of public archaeology is trying to get these publics that don't interact. Right. So un, un, uh, underrepresented communities. Right. Kids, people who if they see it, then later on they will value it more. Right. But what I just realized in that blog post is there's this massive universe of individuals that we can help keep the dream alive. And they could be the ones who do a lot. So rather than public archaeology being, you know, we got a couple of ceramics and then people do the site tour. You could have people who have actually set up a unit and know how to fill out the forms and everything, running their own little crew with their kids or running the screens or helping you do this yeah. just for four hours. I did a, a project for my dissertation in Boise. And the only thing we asked was that they sign up because there were so many people who wanted to do it. If they had all come on one day, it would have been too many people with not enough to do, right? Yeah. So they had to sign up and they had to agree to stay for half a day. And if they weren't going to stay for half a day, then they could just come and visit and stay as long as they like. But we asked them not to dig because they had to sign all these release forms. Uh, so four hours was really kind of, it took them like 40 minutes just to read and do all the forms. And they get the <laughs> site doer to figure out what they're even supposed to do. Yeah. So it was amazing to see people come out that worked, right? But I don't really think any of the people who came out were uh, former CRMers. And it's not necessarily that we, you know, overlooked them or whatever, or that they didn't have, like, we just didn't make an effort to connect with those who already had the dream. Yeah. To connect with people who now do something different, but they would love to do something, take the afternoon off and come and work on a project, just like they used to when they were in their 20s. I would love to see some some projects that do that. Yeah, that bring in a lot of you know former archaeologists who have, um, you know, like you said, they still have the dream, but they had to pursue other things for you know to keep their families alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially in a place like here, the Bay Area or Portland, right? Yeah, there's a million people that live in these areas. <clears throat> that means there's you know dozens of archaeologists out yeah. there that the when they they hear about the project when it's already on the news yeah. and the weekend's already over, right? When the yeah. news comes, they see it. Or they're clicking through their local news feed and they see, oh, great, a public archaeology thing went down. Well, if you didn't have any kids in that nearby school and you weren't on any of the Facebook groups or, you know, you had no way of knowing, you'll only find out about it after the fact. Yeah. When we could have reached out to have skilled people help do valuable work and they still get fulfillment from archaeology. Yeah. Yeah, why did I quit? I don't know, man. <laughs> bad knees, messed up back. It's not that bad. I've seen people that are messed up doing archaeology, but yeah, I'm still just going to keep doing it because I, I made it pretty far already, and you know, I now have a new goal, right? So the projects are different. Yeah, but I still do think that um, just creating that pipeline so that students that get the right skills and they get the right network and stuff. So the minute even. 
a year before the degree is done, they're already just basically out of here, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that it's great that you, you've mentioned that your priorities have changed and your reasons why have changed. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, they should. Yeah. You know, like they should change. And you've got to you've got to anticipate that it's going to change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like me too. My my goals when I first graduated from undergrad, I thought I'm gonna own a CRM firm by the time I'm like forty. And um, <laughs> I also wanted to do that too. <laughs> now I'm thirty three, and I'm like I I never want to own a CRM firm. <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. Uh, but yeah. I still love doing archaeology. I still love doing field work. But, you know, now here I am finding myself on the digital side of things. Yeah. And I never would have predicted that. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm sitting in this room right now, man. There's no way. If you told me 20 years ago this was going to happen, that wouldn't have been. I never would have thought this could ever happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it changes. Because of my position, too, I'm, I'm starting for years and years. I heard how CRM wasn't so great. And then. You know, as I was doing CRM, I started to see where the, you know, you could see awesome reports and good research was coming out. And you go to the SAA and there was all these CRM archaeologists that were presenting this awesome work, right? Yeah. And I also did a lot of presentations on projects that I thought were awesome. And so I worked for companies that, you know, the, the work was good, if not like the low bar was the mid-grade. I never worked, well, when I worked for companies that just went low, I was gone, right? Yeah. In a week or so, if they just want me to slop through the work, I was just gone after that 10-day and never came back again because I didn't want to do garbage. But uh, th there is garbage that exists, and a lot of times it's, uh, you know, stress from the owners and the, the higher-up management. They're really stressed out on trying to get projects, and so they've decided that taking a lost leader is the way that they can, you know, keep things going. However, every project can't be lost leader. That's right. like the way you get in the door, but if you're a huge... <clears throat> conglomerate you don't need the lost leader you're just you know hosing your own self yeah and the work that's created from a lot of that stuff is garbage the only way that kind of stuff can ever even be reconciled is if someone who's actually really skilled and educated and knows a lot about the stuff yeah takes over and is in the position so it's someone who knows how to do crm and then there's an extremely tight budget but fortunately for eight years they studied their phd was you know middle ohio mississippian well, yeah, that person in like just cut and paste in a couple hours can make this report way better. Yeah, because they come with their own blocks of text that they themselves have already done. The yeah, research. yeah, and they just have to you know edit it and not self plagiarize themselves, and they can put this in. Yeah. They're the ones that can make good boilerplate that doesn't suck that's sent to the shippo, or you see a report that's just you know the prehistory has been reported by so and so. Sims 2016, and they don't even put they don't even put anything. They just right. put nothing in there. Yeah, we know about prehistory, and then they try to pawn that off, right? Yeah. Well, none of the questions that anyone's trying to ask are being answered by that thing, but they're doing it because they have no time and they don't know what the hell. They didn't spend eight years learning about Pacific Northwest Coast shell middens. Yeah. They're just doing the best that they possibly can in the six hours they have to write the entire prehistory of this, right? So, someone who's already spent seven years doing it, yeah, that person is gonna kick some butt when they have to do the and you have to have companies with people like that if you don't have anyone like that then you it's just going to be you know garbage out yeah and if you're a mega conglomerate you're looking at probably losing an unprofitable 
department of your company. Yeah, you're right. I mean, so you're right. If you're a conglomerate, then you're spinning off the archaeology or subcontracting it to someone who says that they can do everything for bottom barrel. And then they're also doing the same cut and paste. Yeah. Assumes 2017 when they should be actually, in fact, talking about prehistory and what matters in the archaeological research. Their literature review should be more than just, there are 13 sites, there are five prehistoric, and, you know, seven historical and one, you know, multi-component. Yeah. Those are the worst mm -hmm. reports to read because the person didn't actually, they didn't have the time to do it. Their supervisor never gave them the motivation or incentive to actually do a really good job. And they've already got four other projects that they have to write for. Right. They have you no can money, read no the lack of passion in that oh, I know. report. Yeah. Yeah, so if you've got a company that, you know, the person knows whatever kind of research domain and you let them write the boilerplate, based on their dissertation. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be some sweet, you know, prehistoric homestead, or I mean, historic homesteads, uh, you know, diffusion ceramics and stuff in the Southwest. Those boilerplate sections that you can cut and paste from the company are going to be like peer-reviewed journal articles because you had masters write them. Right. And then all you have to do is just tweak the end, the specific part of this one specific spot. Yeah. And that's another thing I think I wrote about of, it's not boilerplate that's the problem. It's having boilerplate that doesn't address any research domains that's the problem. Yeah. The Maybe. boilerplate needs to be the thing of substantial value. Well, it can be, right? More The substantial value is the looking for a new site. Right. But in the meantime, we can start talking about how this thing does or does not add to what we know about Pacific Northwest shell middens, right? If you have, a, if you have questions that... You go to the conference they don't really know the answer to in your area well you talk to your supervisor hey can I write some boilerplate it's a literature review I, I saw this great talk maybe we can actually pay her to do it you know have her do this boilerplate for us and, and let us use it because then when you've got this thing that's like research domains of what are we gonna find with this phase two what do we even hope to find you know and it's not just like artifacts um, we're gonna find some intact strata and we're going to dig a backhoe train. like come on none of that stuff who cares yeah why are you even doing all that stuff because everybody else did none of that is contributing to what's going on but I, I was actually thinking about this with historical people are still sending me asking me about artifacts and they send me pictures of artifacts because they work at a company that doesn't have any artifact historical person yeah and I can just shake my head like if you're finding a 1905 bottle and all this other stuff you probably have a pretty decent unless it's totally torn up historical site in the west but you don't have anyone who can actually identify that and then none of the people at your company even know anything about historical so essentially you're going to miss a chance to make more money on doing a phase two because you don't know how to characterize this site yeah so it looks like it's a trash midden yeah no joke but <laughs> what is prehistoric stuff i mean trash midden and just because it's prehistoric you're going to assign value because you know well, it's prehistoric. Yeah. Uh, five flakes in an arrowhead is a prehistoric site. Yeah. Well, sweet. What if I have 500 bottles that only the top bases are there, none of the tops? And all I have no jars. And every single one of them is a beer bottle. And they all go from 1905 to 1907, which is the time when they built this house right here. What are you seeing right there? Oh, it's just a bunch of garbage. It's all burned in a pit. It says something about consumption patterns. 
or the behavior of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So why did they build the house on some kind of hobo camp, or maybe they did something there? Well, you're not going to ever find out from one backhoe trench. Yeah. And if you've never thought of, you know, the site development or any of the processes that could happen because, well, hell, it's just a bunch of, I saw a barcode right there. I mean, yeah, it's a backhoe trench. A yeah. backhoe is not a trowel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bazooka compared to your trowel. <laughs> and, you know, a trash midden of today is still, could have been a trash midden 100 years ago. But do you have any separation in these artifacts as you dig down well yeah it looks like all the same trash think about it for a few seconds well if you don't even know how to read the code on the bottom of a bottle you'll never think about this that it could be a stratified site that for a long time this farmer's been putting only his hidden beer bottles in this that he was not supposed to be having right. like if if anybody has dug up privies they know that there's tons of whiskey bottles in there yeah because during prohibition you go out to the outhouse and sneak a little nip or two and then get rid of your bottle. Because nobody's going to go look for it. Or maybe it's just nasty in there and you need a nip to just go in. <laughs> too cheap to clean it out, so you're just drinking to stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, just I, I, I see people asking me things about dates and stuff. I'm shaking my head like, you know, all this stuff about these arrowheads. And I know some of that stuff too, but you know none of the things... What does this code say? Yeah. There's internet databases, but the fact that you don't even know there's internet da- databases, that's kind of... that. And I'm not trying to get on people who do prehistoric, but, I mean, seriously, if there's an arrowhead and a piece of groundstone and five flakes, you found a site. Like, right. It's not... Apply your research yeah. skills. If you find an 1805 bottle, and then you find an 1830s bottle right above that, and then you find a 1925 bottle, you have a stratified site. Whether right. it's like, you know... Is it disturbed? Do you know how to... Soil is another one, too. Yeah. But I never knew anything about soil until mm-hmm. I worked with geomorphologists. But, like, if, if you never looked at the dirt, really, because you were just digging it all out and there was some geomorph that was going to say everything, or the professor was just... guess, Or it was historical where the whole thing is already disturbed, plow zone, whatever. Right. Then you don't ever see that stuff. But if you work with someone who shows you how to identify that, I mean, that can be more valuable because a lot of times you'll see those features and living activity surfaces that you wouldn't normally see if you didn't know how to look at the change in the soil type. right you read the soil and you can see the whole landscape but not just the whole landscape everything that formed it up until that event and everything that happened since the event of yeah. constructing a house or whatever and you know maybe events that could have led to the site's abandonment or uh-huh. events that could have led to the site's formation like if this is a particularly fertile area that's well drained compared to anything else around it. Yeah. You know, the soil is really productive here. And then you can see all all of a sudden it's not anymore. Because, yeah, change. Yeah. Some kind of change, right? So you're right. You don't even have any artifacts, but you can see environmental change. Well, what's that going to do to your artifacts? Where are you going to find right. stuff now at that depth? Yeah. So anyone who's listening, learn how to learn geomorphology. And historical. And, and historical. <laughs> specifically artifacts from 1900 to 1970. Yeah. Especially those 1950s to 1970s artifacts, because that's the kind of stuff that everyone's like, well, it's a Michael Jackson CD. Well, yeah, but when, is it Michael? Is it Jackson 5? Or is it Michael Jackson? Because 
If we're going to the 70s, (laughs) (laughs) you got it. And also listen to your Michael Jackson, too. Know all the anthology. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing but the classics. (laughs) That goes back to what you were saying, though, about how you should. You should get rid of the idea that there's a division between academic and yeah. archaeology. Well, yeah, I mean, I work at Berkeley, so this is academic. If there was a place that's academic, it's here, right? Um, so, you know, I, I'm academic. I work here. I'm not. I'm not faking anybody out. That's what I do now. But when it comes to CRM, just the sheer amount of projects that you're going to end up doing in your career, if yeah. you don't take any kind of academic, if you don't take ownership and push to another level. It's going to stay those same generic reports, right? Right. And so we don't necessarily need Berkeley grads to rescue CRM if people who are there actually, you know, care enough that all those research interests, the things that you, you know, I was interested in historical archaeology for so long and spent a lot of time on prehistoric sites doing a lot of prehistoric archaeology. And that, uh, if you want to be a good archaeologist, you have to do prehistoric archaeology because you're going to have to use soil and artifacts and you're going to have to learn like you know how to figure things out deductive reasoning yeah because you don't there is no magazine to show you what that artifact is right so you've learned a lot by doing prehistoric archaeology that you can apply to historical archaeology they'll get past the crazy speculation that people you know well there's a piece of paper and i saw this advertisement so obviously he's doing this and that and imitating this ethnic group and you're like come on man think about what you're writing and and where did you find that thing in the dirt? That's more important than this yeah. magazine article that shows the same, you know, cufflink. But um, the academic and CRM division, I think, is is kind of it's fading in a lot of ways. Mainly because CRM is doing a lot of those higher end. They're doing a lot of big time stuff now, and it is actually big budget, huge projects with PhDs galore doing in depth research. I mean, I worked on some of them that are multi-volume series is yeah for companies that were multi-million dollar projects more money on you know one or two art, uh, crm projects than whole anthro departments at universities have in 10 years yeah like the cahokia site oh yeah, yeah that's that's a good example of that where they're, where they're doing the bridge work and they found that other village yeah 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 and that's huge tons and tons of volumes of you know, these collaborative CRM academic caliber mm-hmm. uh, research reports have come out of, you know, just trying to do compliance for a bridge, but it's on an incredible site. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that is the degree inflation that, you know, kind of makes it even harder once again to be in cultural resources because if every PI has a PhD <laughs> yeah. and every single crew chief and everyone has a master's, right? They're, they've already all gone through that whole thesis process and all that stuff. So they're already thinking at that level. Yeah. And then, when you, you know, I've been at uh, companies in Arizona where it's just kind of like, who wants to be a crew chief today? Who wants to run this project? Oh, I guess I'll run it. And the PhD wasn't always the one who wanted to. Everybody out there had a master's. You hired field yeah. techs and they're like, well, I don't have my master's yet. Well, you're the only one on this whole crew of 12 people that doesn't have a master's. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why that Arizona stuff ends up being so high level because the people who are working on it not only did they want to work in the southwest but they have a phd yeah and have written like three books and they also work <laughs> for the crm company so you're what you're what's expected of you is a much higher level of you know intellectual and they don't really have that kind of stuff everywhere no yeah yeah arizona was a 
you know, changing place for me because I, I wanted to do that high level stuff. And then I was at a place where it was expected. It was going to always be that level for everything except for like a simple letter report it was always going to be high level archival, high level research, yeah. asking questions that matter in this area, research designs and stuff. It's hard to get away with anything less. And it, I, mean, I don't know, man. I see some stuff. And it's kind of <laughs> like, huh, you did a whole cemetery and this 20 pages is all you... Oh. This is it? Like, you know, the archdiocese reinterred everybody. Well, what about the archaeology part? So you... Yeah, okay. All the bodies were ethically taken care of. But what did you learn on the whole damn thing? Yeah. 20 pages and you just cite the diocese pamphlet as the only... <laughs> they're no. removed they're back in the ground <laughs> yeah we found an amazing site there's 22 features pits that are full of charcoal that date between 2300 BC and like 1000 BC and this could really fill in this data gap on the archaic that we've always wanted to know on this river watershed period like our, our recommendations are um, don't dig in this area. And then, of course, the construction company doesn't dig right there. And then you never find that was the only chance anyone for the next 100 years is ever going to have to learn about that. Right. And Instead, all you the recommendation just, should have been it, it exhibits XYZ yeah. that could lead us to think that we could learn way more <laughs> if we investigate well, it further. So, Or they'll say that. They'll say, don't disturb this because it's a very important site. But... Now knowing that you've just protected this thing, <laughs> tell me more about where this fits, right? Like, yeah. okay, this has gone beyond a simple phase two. Because that's where this an is the only thing that's ever going to happen. From that, you know, an academic project could read that and be like, "Oh, I'm looking for you know French Lick phase Middle Archaic, mm. blah blah blah, in this region, but nobody's writing about it. Yeah, except for this one CRM company out here that yeah. was like." Hey, I found it right here, right where it's supposed to be. But guess what? Uh, the sewer line avoided it. Yeah. So it's still hanging out, waiting to be excavated. And so that's kind of where those boilerplate chunks come, right? So if the company has a kind of person that's interested in that archaic, just even general archaic of that kind of, you know, west side of the Appalachian Mountain, yeah. you know, before you get to the plains area, mm-hmm. right? If they're interested in that, they could have made a three or four page um, piece of boilerplate that addresses a lot of these things that talks about it in general terms or then talks about it in just larger terms of scholarly understanding. Yeah. And so I know it's only a phase two and all you really got to do is talk about what's in the trench and the shovel probes and, and, you know, whatever four units you did. Right. But having that thing in the culture history, it kind of sets the stage for what you're going to do. And I guess maybe you're 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 like pre-writing based on what you find, right? So if you found that archaic piece, you take the archaic French lick boilerplate and then add some paragraphs at the end about how it specifically relates to this specific point, right? Yeah. But if you didn't find that, you wouldn't put that in there, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. so you'd put a later, you know, prehistoric, more formative period prehistoric piece in, right? Yeah. But you got to have them all there. And then as you find more information, your company alters or changes. You see another talk. Well, you change the paragraph that talks about this and add this new research in there. Yeah. And that shows the importance of good research skills and good writing skills and just keeping that up uh, nonstop. Well, it, it, gives people, it gives people opportunities to do what they really love, right? Yeah. People who are very interested in shell middens, it gives them their chance 
to write three to five pages. And this is supposed to be the kind of like 2017 lit review, right? Yeah. So you're, this is for your company. It's basically like a five-page peer-reviewed journal article. I want this thing really well done. It's going to bring up the relevant topics to shell middens, right? Yeah. So then when you find the shell midden, you just take that piece and put it in. And then the if you've written it in a formulaic pattern so that it's like kind of general to specific, the person who's the PI or the, the project manager only has to write that last two or three paragraphs to go, you know, our shell midden research in relation to our site. And they only have to say, well, there has not been any found here. And then given the geomorphology, there may not be, but we had some shell. And so, you know, blah, 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 right? So it places your, but it makes the report look like it's like, dang, you know, these guys are top minds. They, look at this report that they created. It's, the Shippo is actually enjoying that besides just a simple series of photos and you know, I get the first time they read it, they'll enjoy it, right? But yeah, the ninth time they read it, they probably won't. Uh, but then, you know, <laughs> you have these many different domains. And the people who, especially if you have folks that have masters or PhDs, give them the chance to, to talk about these relevant issues. Household, gender, historic period, prehistoric. And let them write like four or five pages and then just store them on the server. Yeah. With a, And they'll know the day that it was... Look at the properties. Oh, this hasn't been updated in like seven years, you know. Oh, well, that lady doesn't work here anymore. Well, maybe we should not use that boilerplate. It's just almost a decade old. Or review it and update it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so if you have them all like Lego block, and I have worked for companies that they did, right, boilerplate sections for geographic areas of the state. And it was the PhD people, and they were given, you know, four or five days. Okay, it's... Christmas break, you get 30 hours, write a boilerplate yeah. on this. I, I, we need it updated because so-and-so found that site and these guys found that site. So I want you to put it all together in there. And then when you'd hand in the report, it was like, dang, you know. Well, I didn't write that. It was yeah, company stuff. And you put that person as an author. Every right. boilerplate person gets an author. Yeah. Yeah. It was authored by like five people. But, yeah. You know, so it goes. Yeah, well, yeah, and it adds weight when their thesis was on this one kind of wagon train thing. And then you found that trail, that yeah. track, you put the larger transportation history of whatever in there. But I see a lot of companies that it's kind of like, here's the project, you know, you got 42 hours, like finish it all, and you got 16 hours for field work, and you go out there and you dig a bunch of shovel probes, and you find like a flake or two, and you don't really know what to do. You've only got 16 hours. Yeah. Where does this flake fit in? Is this important? What, what are we... Is this feature that we found a hearth with a ground stone? Where does that fit into what we're trying to figure out about this area? Well, there's no easy way to find any of that. And it's someone who's not familiar that's trying to write this stuff. Yeah. The boilerplate really helps a lot. So I'm, I'm totally pro-boilerplate, I can tell you that. But only if it's good. Yeah. A good boilerplate is very, very good. And all that it revolves around having a research design or having the guts to even try to design your research. Yeah. Right? Because if you don't have any goals, it doesn't make any sense to write boilerplate. That's just writing a you know, nonfiction novel in anticipation that something will ever happen. But your organization should have these goals based on the scholars that are there. Some of them are bioanthropologists or bioarchaeologists that want to know about human bodies. And they know a lot about it. Well, when there's a skeleton, they're the guys who are going to go out there. But any old skeleton might not. Matt, what are the relevant things for this person's research or for the company's? Yeah. And every company has people. Even the techs 
Techs are very interested in certain things. Give them the freedom to try and write a piece. That could be something that they use to further their job, right? I mean, the company owns that boilerplate, but what they learn from it can be said in a different way for another company or on a conference paper. Yeah. And not everybody's going to be interested in every little thing, but you never know when a piece of boilerplate is going to be useful. So, Yeah, and you find, like you said, you find ways to work on what's interesting to you. Oh, yeah. That is what carries you through. That's what Mm -hmm. keeps you in. That's what, you know, staves off the burnout. You're talking about, you know, one of the things that kept me in was every year there was always some site that something happened that I wanted to know more. I'd spend all this extra time, like, at my house or whatever, writing a conference paper. So my company would pay a lot of times the air air mileage or the hotel or some combo and they might pay me for the whole time I was there or just the day I presented or I'd use vacation or whatever. But yeah, yeah, every year presenting at some conference based on something that I thought was interesting over, you know, 15 years, I had all these research topics, all these different things that I'd spent all this time learning about to give a 15 minute talk. My company got experience, but then I ended up being learning some about something that I was very interested in when I was doing projects that maybe I didn't care about, you know. Yeah. You do like 20, 30 projects that you're in charge of each year. One of them, there's one piece or somebody else's project. One little interesting thing happens and you spend a year researching it and give a talk. I mean, that's that's significant over the years. You learn a lot about a lot of different things. Yeah. And it, it does keep you from burning out when you hate what you're doing. Because there will be those days. <laughs> You're right. Sometimes the, the famine is longer than the feast. <laughs> well, where can people reach out to you online? Like you're you're on Twitter. You're on yeah. you're online. Yeah. So I am on Twitter, and it's succinct Bill. Um, that's my Twitter name, and then I blog weekly on the succinct Research blog, and so you can email me directly through that. You can comment on. A blog posts and I highly recommend it that's a good way to get conversations going when you write a blog you don't always get any feedback so you never know I mean I know because of Google Analytics that people are actually reading it right. but I don't actually know if it's going into anyone's head or it's creating any kind of dialogue Yeah. so to write a comment is almost more important than the author writing the blog Yeah. so we always malign the comments because they people can get negative and all kinds of stuff and can go sideways and we see all this crazy stuff, but in those comments, it's almost more interesting than what's going on in the actual blog post. It can be, yeah. yeah. So I, I recommend that, and then you know, watch out it's cultural resource management podcast. I'm there almost every single episode. Yeah, nice. And same thing there. We talk about stuff a lot of times that comes through mail or comments that we've received on social media or through through the the blog or yeah the blog or sorry podcast. So make comments on the podcast. Yeah. Because we we always like to address things that people are interested in. Nice. Well, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for listening to the Go to Go Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, All of your contributions are incredibly appreciated, and uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again, and please uh, share this with 
any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is godigahole.com. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.com.